And I want to just start um, by saying to Shane and Christy that I, I appreciate you pursuing God's call on your lives. And, uh, you know, sometimes to, to the rest of us or to the people around us, when we pursue a calling, it doesn't make sense. You know, for you to go back to, to med school, not that you're an old guy, but, but at your age, doesn't make sense. But the fact that you are pursuing what God has called you to, what you feel he's called you to, uh, is, is an encouraging thing. And we want to continue to pray for you as you pursue this, uh, this calling that God's placed on you. I appreciate it. You know, Keith uh, said at the beginning that, that this has been a really tough week for, for our nation, and, and, and it truly has. It's, it's been a tough week. And I think it's important that as a church, we respond correctly. And sometimes we can get caught up in the, in the politics of this and, and in, in, in drawing sides and, and, and really getting caught up in things that aren't important or that aren't for the church to get caught up into. Because when I look at Scripture, the response of the church, the responsibility of the church is as Second, as Second Chronicles 7.14 says that, that if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face. That's what God tells us to do. He says when, when we see the wickedness around us, we are to humble ourselves to pray and seek his face. And, and can I encourage the church, can I encourage us as the Fairlaw Mennonite Church to be humbling ourselves, to be getting on our knees and praying for healing of this nation, to pray for healing for all of the animosity that we see and the injustice that we see, but that we not get caught up in becoming angry or bitter, but that we be the people of God and we pray. And it's important during this time, I believe in the history of our, of our nation, that, that we the church rise up and be the church. That we stand out, that we are different that we are salt and light. You know, one of the greatest threats to the church today is the impurity of the church. A danger of becoming so much like the, like the world that, that the body, that the members of the church can't be differentiated from the world, that we become just like the world. And Christ taught his disciples that, that they were to have influence. That as Matthew 5, 13 says, they were to be salt and light to the earth. And he says, but if salt loses its saltiness, in other words, because of its, if it becomes impure, how can it be made salty again and it no longer is any good except to be thrown out? And he says, not only are you supposed to be salt and you're supposed to be light and, and that we're supposed to let our light shine. And church, it's a time for us to let our light shine. 
And it's important that the church maintain its purity and that purity is kept within the church. And we have to be careful that we don't become corrupt, that we don't allow our minds to be corrupted. You know, Romans 12, 2 says that we're not to conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but we're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Then we will be able to test and approve and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Are we allowing our minds to be transformed? Are we renewing our minds on a regular basis so that we can test what his will is? So it's important that the church maintain its, its purity. And, and as leaders, we have the responsibility of striving to keep the church pure. Hebrews 13, 17 says that we as leaders of the Pharaoh Mennonite church, pastors and elders, will give account to those Believers who are in our care. And that is those who are in our care are those who have, have submitted themselves to the church through becoming members of the body. And so we are responsible for the purity of those in the church that are members. You know, 1 Peter 5 says that to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's suffering, and also one who will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing. So as leaders, we have a great responsibility. And as you read the New Testament, as you read about the first church, it was very evident that, that the Lord wanted the church for which Christ died for to be kept pure and undefiled. And, and you see Paul over and over um, crying to the church to be pure. He says in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2, he says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. Paul understood the responsibility of keeping the church pure, to present her to Christ as a pure bride. Then he says, I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. In other words, Paul was saying, I want to present you, church, as a pure bride, but you're flirting with the world. You're becoming impure. You're losing your saltiness. 
You're losing your witness. And then when you read the book of Corinthians, you see how the church had become impure and corrupt. This morning we're going off topic. We're not, we're not in Nehemiah because there's something that has a family that we have to address. And it's this thing of impurity in the church. And how do we respond to those in the body who live in an impure, in a sinful state? When members begin to live in an outward, serious, and unrepentant sin, what is the church's responsibility? And this is something that we have not done correctly in the past. And we take responsibility, I take responsibility for the way that we have lacked in in, in addressing sin in the church. We have not responded the way we should based on the instructions that were given from Scripture. So when we in the past have had people that that lived in, in this outward, unrepentant type of sin, we've not addressed it the way we should. And we have people living in that state. And I believe fear often kept us from handling these cases correctly. You know, several months ago, we, we as a leadership team, we were confronted with this situation from a brother in our church who is living in an adulterous affair, who is living in sin. And as a leadership team, we, as we prayed and as we sought the Lord and we spent a lot of time in prayer and in discussion on what our responsibility should be, And we followed the Matthew 18 principle, which we're going to look at this morning. And we determined several months ago that this time and from from moving from here forward, we are going to strive to get this right, to do what God's word says when one is caught in sin, in unrepentant sin. And so we have followed, we have met with, we have met with on several occasions, and it brings us to the point this morning of of sharing it with the church. See, several months ago, we were made aware that that one of our brothers left his wife and and was living in an adulterous affair. And so we followed the principle, and, and we're following that this morning, and that's what we're going to talk about. And last week we talked about the importance of how Nehemiah went to the, those that were offending and, and, and addressed them directly. And that we shouldn't be gossiping and talking about, but we should be going directly to the person. And so let me this morning, we're going to turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. We're going to be going through that and explaining how you address sin in the church. So just a little bit of background, Matthew chapter 18 so Jesus and his disciples have experienced some really awesome things, and, and one day they're walking along. 
And one of them asked, hey, who among us is the greatest? Who is your favorite disciple? Who, who is the greatest disciple? And, and so Jesus, when they, when they ask that question, he brings a child to himself. He puts it in the middle of all of his disciples, and he says this. And he says, I tell you the truth in verse 3. In other words, mark this town. Pay attention. Unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like a child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, that word change, where it says unless you change, that means to repent or to turn around. So to be a citizen of the kingdom, you must become a child of the king. In order to become a citizen of the kingdom, you must turn from yourself. You must repent and turn and go the other way. You must change. You must trust the Father. To be a citizen of the kingdom, you must become a child of the king. Are you a child of the king? And that sets for us the stage for the rest of the chapter. You see, Jesus talks about the Father's love for his children and how his love affects the way that we love one another in the church. See, what Jesus has just done is he has, in a physical way, showed this child, as used it as an illustration to, to a spiritual reality that every one of my followers is a child of the king. So now, whenever you see the word child here in Matthew 18, or little ones, he's talking about how the father's children, Christians, are to be cared for. So as you go through the rest of this chapter, that's what Jesus is talking about. How do you care for people in the body of Christ? How do we care for Christians? And, and he begins by saying, you know, we need to protect one another. You know, we're, we're selflessly concerned about each other's holiness. And, and we're radically committed to one another's holiness. We are to care about how we live and how those around us live. We're to watch out for each other. And he says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. In other words, if something is leading you to sin, get rid of it. Get rid of it. Jesus says, don't toy around with it. Don't flirt with it. Don't entertain it. Destroy it. Remove it. You see, when we become passionate and zealous about our own purity, then we will be passionate and zealous about protecting one another from sin. We will have concern when we see our brothers and sisters in Christ living in sin. But it begins by us desiring purity ourselves, by us following God's commands, by living the way Christ 
taught us to live. Yet when we are casual about sin, we become like the world. And then when we become casual about sin, we casually lead others into sin. We cause our brothers and sisters to stumble. So it's important that that we protect one another, that we protect our brothers and sisters in Christ, that we love them enough to protect them. And it begins with our own lives. So Jesus says we need, if you, you need to protect your purity and the purity of those around you. And then he goes on and he talks about, about a shepherd who goes running after one sheep. He leaves the 99 and he goes running after the one because the one has been lost. And it's a beautiful picture for us that that when one of our sheep roams away, gets away from the flock, we who are here must go looking for, pursuing that one sheep that has strayed away. Because in verse 14, Jesus said, It is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. The Father cares for you. The Father is committed to pursuing you as his child. And this is how we must pursue one another, particularly when one among us wanders. We are to pursue that brother or sister because that's what God does. And we're called then, he says, to restore one another. Let's read Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. And here are the steps to, to, to confronting someone caught in sin. It says, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. Just between the two of you. If he listens, you have won your brother over. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along so that in every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen, then tell the church. And if he refuses, even then the church, to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. So this is something that is essential for the health of the church. Now we often think that church discipline is legalistic. It's unloving. Shouldn't we just show grace? And and, and I understand that, that some of you have been hurt by church discipline that was exercised in an unloving way. That some of you have experienced more, more, in more of a, a hateful way, a way of, of, of punishing you, of shunning you, than a way of showing care and love and concern. And so I understand some of the, uh, of, of the uneasiness about this topic or the pain that it may bring up. 
But we have to understand that this, and one of the things I think that the Lord has showed me during this last week of preparing is that, that one, of the, one of the most unloving things that we can do is not pursue that person that is caught in sin. It is more unlovingly to let them go and live their lives the way they want than it is for us to go to them and share with them and show them our concern for the way that they are living. And the ultimate desire of, of this process is restoration. And the way we begin this process of restoration is exactly what verse 15 says. If a brother sins against you, you go. Did you hear what it says? He said, you go. It doesn't say go and tell five or six other people, go and share a prayer request with your ABF or your community group. When, when, when someone sins against you or, or you see someone living in sin, the first thing that you are required to do according to God's word, according to Jesus' own words, is you go and you share with them. You go and you show them their sin. So the goal here is to keep the circle as small as possible, as long as possible. To, to not let it get out. And it's not this thing in the past we've been accused of, of well, we're trying to hide something. Or no, we're doing what the Bible says. We are going to them first. Desiring for them to repent first. Not talking to other people, not asking other people's opinions. Not saying, did you hear this or that, but you go. Remember last week, Ephesians 4.29 says, Don't let unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up to their needs, according to their needs. And so if you see a brother living in sin, his need isn't that you tell 10 other people. His need is for you to go and lovingly care for and to show them your concern. But we must guard and protect each other's character for each other's good and ultimately for the glory of God. And two, we, I, must be open to correction as well. Because I am a fallen human being, I'm saved by grace, but I still tend to, to, to desire to, to live by the flesh. And so when I do something, when I am living a way that I shouldn't be living, I need to be open, you need to be open to someone coming to you and sharing with you a way that you have hurt them or what they see about your character. And Proverbs says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. It's good for us. It's healthy for us. It's important for us to be caring for each other and to be keeping each other accountable, to be open to correction, but also to be open to giving correction in a loving and caring way. So it's just between you and them. Because the more that a person's sin is discussed among other people, 
the easier it is for, for that brother or sister to become more resentful and the harder it will be for, for, for there to be restoration to happen. So go to them. Share with them. Love them enough to go. Love them enough that you don't sit back and watch them wander deeper and deeper into sin. And love them enough to go privately to them and share. The goal, as Jesus said, is to win your brother over. And when we go with a spirit of love and humility and gentleness, oftentimes we will win them over. That's why Galatians 6.1 says that, brothers, if someone is caught in sin, you who are spiritual, restore him gently. It says, carry each other's burdens. You know, what our brother needs is for people to go to him and share with him gently and lovingly and to help to carry his burden, to draw him back. Now, Jesus says, in some situations, this isn't going to work. So when this doesn't work, when you have exercised this first step, when you've gone to them and they continue to live in sin, he says, take two or three with you, one or two with you. And he's going back to a Deuteronomy 19 principle. It says, one witness is not enough to convict a man accused of any crime or offense that he may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So he's using an Old Testament principle here in the New Testament saying, look, when this doesn't work, take somebody with you. There again, the idea of, of taking one or two people with you is, is you still keep this circle very, very small. You're still not going out. You're not telling other people. You're, you're not even sharing it as a prayer request to a bunch of other people, but you're keeping it with, with maybe two or three people, and together you have coveted and committed to praying for this person so that when you go to them, hopefully they will listen to two or three of you. The idea here still, it is, it, is, it is to go with other believers with much gentleness and humbleness and because of our love for that person. It's not going in a judgmental way. It is going in love. And again, it's not necessarily church leaders. This isn't something that, that, that is an official act of the church where the elders are made aware of and the elders go. You know, 95% of church discipline happens this way or should happen this way. Where 95% of the church never finds out what has gone on. But because we love each other, because we are disciples, we hold each other accountable because we love each other. And we win each other back 
But then Jesus says that if the brother refuses to listen to the three, now the circle clearly grows when we gather the believers together in the local church and the church is made aware of the unrepentant sin. And you may think, you may be sitting here this morning and thinking, well, why tell the whole group about this sin? Why let everybody know? Jesus told us to. And and the reason is because we, we gather together because we love our brother. And we want him to come back to Christ. So we're going to to gather our efforts in prayer and reaching out. And we're going to overwhelm him with prayer and love. It's not done with the intent of shaming the person. This is not done with with the intent to shame. If you would understand how hard this is for me to stand up and to tell you about this, to talk about a friend of mine who I've served with on a leadership team, this isn't done with, shame, with the intent of shaming. This is done because I love my brother. And I want us as a body to gather together and to pray for our brother. It is with the idea of sending an army of brothers and sisters to surround him, to go to battle spiritually for him. So church, it's our responsibility to love this brother and to bring him back from his sin through our prayers, through our conversations. But then Jesus says, if he refuses to listen even to the church, It says, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. We're not there yet. You know, we have, as a leadership team, several of us have met over the last three months. We've sat down with and talked to, and I just met this last week on Thursday and and explained what we were going to do this morning. And so he knows what we're doing. He understands why we have to do what we have to do. He understands that, that what he's doing is sin. And yet he's not willing to turn from that. And therefore, If he continues in that state, Jesus says we're to treat him or her as an unbeliever 
who is outside of the church, to treat him as he is no longer a brother. He must not be treated as a member of the body of Christ. Actually, the word excommunication means to putting a specific individual or group out of communion, in other words, out of being allowed to partake in the Lord's Supper. So a person who is excommunicated, they're not to partake in communion with the rest of the body. Now, this is not shunning. This is not excluding him from from our lives. It's not writing him off. Because remember, Jesus, when he was here on earth, he spent a lot of time with, with Gentiles and tax collectors. He spent time engaging them in conversation, talking to them about the gospel. So that's what we're to do, to engage, to share the gospel, to spend time with these people, try to win them back. but they're no longer considered a brother. And this is tough to do. And it may be for you this morning even tougher to understand. I thought the church was supposed to be a place where we welcome and love everyone. This seems to go against the grain of everything that we think, doesn't it? But what I want you to understand is that, that this, this is the most loving thing that we can do. And this is what Jesus commands us to do. You see, what is not loving is letting people continue to live in sin and not pursue them. Not warn them. And if you look at the New Testament, there are several places, 1 Corinthians 5 and and others, where a brother was put outside of the fellowship because of, of their open, serious, and unrepentant sin. But our goal always is, and the goal, as you read in in 1 Corinthians 5, was was to bring restoration to the brother. And it is for the good of the individual. It is for the protection and the purity of the church. And it is ultimately for the glory of the body of Christ that we do these things. That we as a leadership team have discerned that this is the process that we have to walk through. It's not something that we chose. It's something that, we, that, that has been brought before us that we have to do according to Scripture.